Hello and welcome to 15 Minutes in Hell. It's a 15-minute long podcast show. Today I'm joined by Chris Hayes of MSNBC. Chris, thank you for joining me. It's good to be here. Wonderful. So I watched a thing a few days ago of yours about the kind of long con of the modern conservative grift. found it fascinating. Why do you think people like Tate, Russell Brand, and I guess Donald Trump counts as well, have taken such a strong hold on America? Well, I... I... <laughs> I mean that's a big, big question. Here's here's the, the the sort of I guess thirty second version. I think that we've seen my first book was about sort of declining trust in institutions, right. and we've seen that measured across all sorts of survey data. I think when people people begin to sort of distrust traditional sources of authority, then you have a group of people that, um, you know, figures can come along and basically say, look. All those people are lying to you and I'm telling you the truth. And what's so kind of dangerous about this move is that you then cut people off from all other sources of authority (laughs) so that you then have a situation where people's sort of knowledge inputs are so shielded from any puncture that you could just tell them whatever. So when you get arrested or you get accused of something awful, oh, that's the deep state coming to get me. That's the uniparty, the globalist, the whatever. It's extremely convenient. I mean, it really reminds me when I was a kid, you know, like the televangelist in the 80s. And, you know, it's a very similar kind of dynamic. Um, It's all about creating a trust relationship that's both intense and, and, and durable, but also intentionally making people distrust any other possible competitor for the trust of your audience. Right. I feel like you saw some of that with the cryptocurrency stuff as well, this kind of very, almost cult-like thing of, oh, well, you don't want to trust the traditional financial system because they're dodgy. Exactly. And it's dangerous because, like, there's there's skepticism that could be warranted, but then, but then it, you know, like Fox News, this has been their model, right? Fair and balanced. Their whole thing is, I don't tell my audience like, only, I'm the only one telling you the truth. You shouldn't read anything else. Don't trust anyone else. I, I, I never tell them that, right? There's lots of stuff. That I'm one voice in a in a in a whole variety of stuff. Fox is telling its people, only us, only us, right? And. It's, do you think that RFK Jr. is kind of almost the test of the scale of that message? I do. And I think, you know, he's interesting because I think there is, oh, there's some political scientists who've written on this as well as journalists about how politics is polarizing around the axis of trust, like high trust, low trust. Right. And there's lots of really interesting work about high trust democracies, low trust democracies, Um the U.S. I mean, when you zoom out, the U.S. The sort of fundamental issue is that we're trying to run a low trust democracy, and it's very hard to do that. <laughs> um, so, and, what does a high trust and a low trust look like then? Well, a high trust society looks like you know, like Denmark, right? That's it's a, it's, a, it, it's uh, now they have a lot of advantages. They're very homogeneous, obviously very small. But um, if you look at, there's different ways you can measure this, right? But you know, and low trust, like Russia is a very low trust society, right? Like if you look at the polling and ask people, there's there's a battery of questions. Ask people like, do you expect other people to rip you off? Do you expect other people to do the right thing most of the time or not? Like blah, 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 blah. And when you have low trust societies, you have a lot of cynicism. You have a lot of paranoia. You have a lot of, a lot of stuff that makes it hard to engage in the sort of like collective enterprise of self-governance. And right now we're we're in this situation where it's 
the U.S. is becoming more and more of a low trust society. The politics access is, is polarizing around trust. Um, and you're seeing RFK as a sort of interesting coda to that. Um, but the, the broader issue is how you try to rebuild trust in a way that's actually like effective for, for, for the, the project of, of democracy. And that's actually the question I had. How do we rebuild that trust? Because America has deteriorating social services, extreme polarization, complete insane people on one party. How the hell do you rebuild that? I don't know the answer, man. I mean, I think you have to, you know, you, 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 I mean, the sort of left, the left view on this, right, is that if you if you reduce inequality, if you if you if you find a way to like create a less precarious middle class society, which has really been lost, right? You can rebuild it, and I think there's a lot to that. Like I, I generally am in line with that, right? Like I do think the the inequality and the sort of yeah, the increasing kind of sort of have have not oligarchic nature of sort of the structure of American society is a huge part of that erosion of trust. But there's also this sort of flywheel effect, right? Which is that these things feed on each other, right? Like it's easier, like, and so to try to get to the policies that would do that, you have to overcome a lot of the obstacle of trust to begin with. Right. So there's these sort of vicious cycles to undo, and I don't have any sort of brilliant novel insight on how to undo them. Well, you're, you're taking your podcast on the road, and I do have a very specific question about that, which is, do you think that modern media is leaving out most of America? Because this is a theory I've got. I feel like you, you are touching upon more of America than some political people do. And I wonder how, where, if that was kind of the goal of the tour. Well, no. I mean, I, look, the, the question always when you talk about American media is like, what do you mean by media, right? So if, if, you, if you define it expansively, like nothing's left out. I mean, <laughs> there is media for everyone, Let's define right? it as modern news then. Cable news. Uh, major newspapers then? Yeah, I mean, major newspapers. I, yeah, I mean, I think, I guess I would say in an empirical sense, right, it's just a fact that they, that, that they shrunk, right? I mean, it used to be the case that tens of millions of people, you know, you, you had a, you had a small, smaller number of outlets, those outlets lead a larger number of people. There's right. been this, um, that's, there's been a sea change, right? So there's, you know, a, a million different places people can get information from. And those mainstream outlets have have shrunk in the audience they have. In some ways, I think, I don't know, it's such a complicated thing because it's a real trade-off, right? You're making a different product if you're speaking to 20 million people or to 2 million people or to 200,000 or to 20,000. That is just an absolute law of nature. <laughs> like, and b- believe me, I know that because I've written articles for 2,000 people and I've done a show for 2 million people. And I do, I do a podcast that has about a million downloads a month. There, so the question of leaving out is always a question of how many people are you trying to reach? And is it possible when people have so many options to reach the breadth that was once reached, right? Like my favorite detail about this is that the comedian Tiny Tim got right. married on the got married on the Tonight Show live, I think. Right. And it was like there was like 60 million viewers. <laughs> and, and which is like more than anything, more than the Super Bowl. And it's like Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, cuz there was nothing else to watch at right. that hour. If you were up, you watched it. So I don't know I don't know the answer to that. I do think like 
there's all sorts of ways in which quote unquote mainstream media sort of gets into its own bubble. And, um, but the bigger problem has to do with a more structural problem about just the nature of the proliferation of options. Right. How'd you mean? Well, I just mean that like when I put my show, when when my show is on, okay. And this is true even in the 10 years that I've been on. When I started in 2014, you could say, uh, in 2013, you could say my competition, this is before House of Cards and Netflix started streaming, the whole streaming evolution. Mm-hmm. Say my, my competition were the other things that people that were on air at the time, the other cable networks, the other things on air. Now, my competition is literally every piece of content that's ever been created in the history of the world. Right. <laughs> Like, like every TV show, like someone could be watching Laverne and Shirley at eight o'clock or they could be watching the second season of The Wire or they could. So the, the, just the, the, the exponential, almost inconceivable proliferation of options has a natural effect on audience size that is going to overwhelm any decisions at the margins that you're making about what the content is. So in that. In that realm, how has that changed how you do your job then? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I it hasn't because I think if you try to think in those terms, you can't have any success, right? You can't like you can't reverse engineer everything from what's gonna what are people gonna watch? It's gonna be a hit. Well, it's gonna be a hit, right? Because and also, if anyone knew that, then they do it. I mean, this is the thing about all media decisions. And all, I'm writing a book right now about attention and about the sort of mystery of what attracts it. Um, you know, if, if people knew, they do it, right? right. <laughs> like, but what I will say is that you do get I, – I compare what I do a lot to craft, like carpentry or, you know, people that – People that physically construct things where okay. you if you watch a like someone who's like a really good carpenter, you know, 20 years into their career, they a have like feel they have a feel and an efficiency and they just kind of just move through the work with right. purpose and not whereas you watch someone who's new to something, right? You're like, wait, what is it? What am I doing here? That kind of like second guessing the sure. sort of much more procedural. So the way that I approach my work now, having done this for 10 years and done, you know, what amounts to 2,500 shows, you know, 12,000 segments of television mm-hmm. is I, I kind of know what I want to say and I kind of know how to make TV and I, right. I go about doing it. So with that in mind, how do you feel about Elon Musk? How do you feel about all that? Because he's begging people to put his videos online, begging Taylor Swift, got Tucker Carlson in his flop era. How do you feel about even just how Twitter is now? Oh, I th- it's awful. I mean, I, you know, again, the, the, the core product, I think, still remains, you know, pre-Elon Musk is sort of terrible and compelling at the same time. I, I think Musk, I don't. I think Musk is well. He's he, there's a part of my book that's about him. I, his his desire for attention is is more ravenous even than Donald Trump, which is saying something. I think it's the most ravenous desire for attention I've ever seen. And right. in fact, you could put a price tag on it. I mean, he basically burned tens of billions of dollars on attention. <laughs> like he bought Twitter and has ruined it so that people will pay attention to him. Um, it's it's the most expensive and pathetic purchase in the history of humankind. Right. Um, so in terms of like the platform, like, dude, all of those numbers are junk. 
They're junk. The views have changed dramatically. They do. They don't mean anything. John Herman is like one of the best tech writers. Oh, he's amazing. Possibly the best tech writer, actually. He wrote a piece in New York Magazine about the the view numbers, and they're just like uh, I mean, it's one of those things. It's a little like with conspiracy theories, where it's like just take us take a be take a step back and say that out loud. Do you think that happened? Yeah. Like, do you think an Italian satellite and the Chinese government, the ghost of Hugo Chavez, hacked the election? Like, probably not. Like, take a step back. Do you think one out of five humans watched that video? Watch Tucker Carlson specifically. Do you, do you think that's, you know, no, not whatever. Like, when there's a video with like a billion views and it's oh, like. No, no, Tucker's ones have like, that many views. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah, a third of Americans. Right. Like, do you think more people watch the video than there are Americans? Do you think that, like, does that scan as possible? And like, obviously it isn't. It's such a preposterous lie. I think. I don't know like what will happen to Twitter, but I think this idea that it's going to be some future platform for video is pretty dubious. You're not going to put your money on the everything app? No. God, no. No. So somewhat, somewhat more chill for the last two minutes. You are a former theater kid. Yes. Does, does doing the news scratch that itch? I say that as a former theater kid myself. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I perform every night. I have a show every night. I have showtime. Yeah, yeah. I have makeup and lights. And and then I perform. I have a monologue. I stand deliver. I have I pick my spots about what I do. There's there's real like performance craft to it. Um, yeah, it ap- absolutely is. I mean, it, it it's it's so funny that this is how it ended up, because I think when I got out of college, I was sort of torn between doing theater and doing journalism. And I've sort of ended up doing some kind of hybrid of the two. Yeah, I I was in theater class in Aberystwyth and then went, these people are actually insane, so I couldn't quite do it. But do you see yourself <laughs> as an entertainer or a journalist, or is it like a secret third thing? I see myself as a journalist, um, much more. I, I don't think I'm an entertainer. I mean, I don't think anyone would like, no one would like want to, you know, watch an hour of my stand-up, I don't think. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a journalist, but I'm a journalist who has to be entertaining and has to be compelling. I mean, I don't think of it entertaining so much as compelling. I think those are a little yeah. different, but like people do, you know, I say this to people all the time and they're like, well, you know, the news is doing that just because people for eyeballs. And it's like, well, we have to get people to watch. Like you, you have to hold people's attention. That's the, it's not holding people's attention is necessary, but never sufficient. Like you, right. that can't just be the only reason you're doing a thing, but if it's not there, then you're not doing your job. <laughs> like it, it's also misunderstanding the concept of influence. It suggests that compelling and influential stuff is objective. That's not true. Right. No, it's not. And, and in fact, often it, it isn't. In fact, some of the most important things are very hard stories to tell. And some of the most, you know, someone had a great, uh, post of the, different views, the viewer metric, and this is YouTube, which is like a little more trustable between the Deion Sanders interview on 60 Minutes and the Zelensky interview. Mm-hmm. And it's like 10 to 1 Deion Sanders to Zelensky. <laughs> it's like, you know, attention is not a moral faculty. Is is a is that's a that's a central tenet of the the book I'm writing. It's not a moral faculty. It's not a, a faculty that 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 hinges on substance. Everyone knows that what is going on the war in, I mean, everyone unanimously would say the war in Ukraine is more important than the performance of the Colorado Boulders football team. Right. I don't think you'd get any, anyone, but then the question is, do you want to watch a video, an interview with Deion Sanders? Or do you want to watch one with, with Vladimir Zelensky? And the answer is I want to watch Deion Sanders and that's fine. I no no shame in that. It's just, those are two different things. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's been such a pleasure having you. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to 15 Minutes and How. You can find us at where'syoured.at slash podcast. Join us on the Discord. 
chat.wheresyourhead.at. Thanks so much.